Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Brainwaves. Hear the world differently. Tune in to 3CR Community Radio Wednesdays at 5pm for Brainwaves, Melbourne's drive-time radio show, giving voice to people with mental illness. One in five have a mental illness, but five in five can enjoy this great program featuring heartwarming stories, great information and some laughs as well. Find us at 3CR, 855 on your AM dial. Sponsored by Mental Illness Fellowship of Victoria. Hi there, you're listening into Brainwaves on 3CR, 8.55am, 3CR Digital Radio and 3cr.org.au. Today from the Brainwaves team, we have Marnie and Lucy. We're going to be talking today with Dr. Joe Robinson, who is the Head of Suicide Prevention Research at Origin. Origin have just recently released their report called Raising the Bar for Youth Suicide Prevention, in which they researched into the rising suicide rates in young Australians aged 18 to 24. Um, Just a warning, though, this week's episode of Brainwaves will contain mention of suicide and self-harm. If you need any support, please contact Lifeline on 131114 or Wellways Helpline on 1300 111500. So, Joe, could you tell us about Origin and the work you do for them? Sure. So, Origin is the National Centre of Excellence in Youth Mental Health. We provide clinical services to young people aged 12 to 24 across the northwest of Melbourne. And we do that through a tertiary mental health service and also through the operation of four different headspace centres. And then we've also got an integrated research and translation part of the service as well, which does research and delivers training and education and resources. Um, across the whole spectrum of youth mental health difficulties. And I lead the Suicide Prevention Research Unit there. Okay. So what were the major findings of Origin's most recent report into youth suicide? So what we found when we did the Raising the Bar report was that, very sadly, suicide rates amongst young people in Australia appear to be increasing, and they have been doing so steadily over the past 10 years. So what we're seeing currently is suicide rates at a 10-year high. Um, And it looks like, from having drilled down a little bit more into those findings, it looks like that's being driven by increasing rates of suicide amongst young females. So although the number of suicides is greater amongst young men, the rates are increasing um, more rapidly amongst young females. And so that's something that we need to be concerned about. I think historically we've conceptualised suicide as a male problem but we're really seeing these quite worrying trends amongst young females and particularly quite young females. Um, So that's something for us to be very aware of. We also found that um, youth suicides are significantly more likely to be part of a suicide cluster than adult suicides. So again, that's something for us to be very mindful of is the impact that being exposed to the suicide of a friend or a peer can have on other young people who might also be vulnerable. So we kind of, when we looked at the data, that's what we saw. And we did a lot of consultation with young people and across the sector. Um, And what we really found was that young people are very keen to be part of the solution. They very much um, recognise the need for a separate youth suicide prevention plan. So what we've got in Australia is is a suicide prevention strategy, but it's very, very out of date. 
Um, but there's no separate youth plan that's specific to young people. And, and everybody agreed right across the board that youth suicide looks quite different to suicide amongst adults. So we do need a different response. And we, and we very much heard loud and clear from young people that they want to be front and centre to that response. They were saying things like, we very much need to have open and supportive conversations about suicide. Um, including in the workplace, but also in schools and other educational settings, so universities and case colleges, places like that. There's been a real reluctance to talk openly about suicide in those sorts of forums, and young people were very much saying that it's important that we do have um, have the capacity to have that sort of open and frank discussion. Yeah, they definitely. very much saw technology as being part of the solution, and they very much saw that you know a service response needs to meet their needs, not necessarily the needs of adults. So what are the main risk factors for suicide among young people? So, look, suicide is often the result of a very sort of complex mixture of of factors. Um, When we think about risk factors, we probably think about the people who are at greatest risk of suicide would be young people who have experienced mental health problems. Um, And and when we're talking about young people, that's often um, depression and anxiety-type disorders. Um, so they tend to be at higher risk of suicide than young people that don't have those sorts of difficulties. We also know that young people who have previously engaged in suicidal behaviour or self-harming behaviour are at greater risk of further suicidal behaviour. And we also know that young people who have ex- been exposed to a suicide death in others are at greater risk as well. But we also know that there's other sectors of the population who appear to be overrepresented in the suicide statistics. And and a very striking example is our Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander young people who are several times more likely to die by suicide than non-Indigenous counterparts. So that's particularly concerning. And it's largely the result of sort of oppression and discrimination and those sorts of things rather than their Aboriginality per se. And the same can be said of young people who identify as LGBTQI+. So again, we tend to see higher risk of suicide in those groups. And again, that's the result of marginalisation, homophobia and discrimination. Um, so Joe, in, in your opinion, what can explain the increase in youth suicide over the past 10 years? Well, look, I think it's, it's complex and it's hard to know and it won't, you know, we can't really pin it down to one thing. I do think, though, that we need to really pay attention to the fact that those increases are really playing out amongst young women. Yeah. And what we're also seeing, or we appear to be seeing, are increases in rates of self-harm and rates of depression and anxiety amongst young women. So I think, although I wouldn't necessarily say that we would explain the increased suicide rates purely by those things, I think what we do know about young women who experience depression, who engage in self-harm, is they tend to seek help. Yeah. So they're the, they're the set, section of the population probably most likely to seek help from a GP or from a headspace centre or from a teacher or whoever. And the other thing that we know is often those women don't, don't receive the attention and the support that they require. So yeah. we're doing a lot of work at the moment, for example, with emergency departments, and we know that there are lots of young people who present to emergency departments with self-harm who simply get sent home without really getting the proper assessment and the proper support and ongoing treatment that they need. And so we would say if we really want to make a dent in the rising rates of youth suicide, we need to pay proper attention to young people when they do present for help. So many young people don't present for help, um, but many do. And when they do, we need to be absolutely certain that we're giving them the best quality care we possibly can and not dismissing their behaviour as attention-seeking or something like that. Yeah, definitely. Um, And do you think generally young people are placed under increased pressure? Um, Probably. 
hard to remember when I was young because it's such yeah. a long time ago. Um, but certainly looking at my daughter and her peers, there seems to be an awful lot of pressure around high school achievement and achievement at university. And it's much harder to get into the workplace than it was years ago. You know, you require multiple degrees to get an entry-level job and those sorts of things. So I'm, I'm yeah. sure that those sorts of things are contributing. But as I say, it's complex. Yeah. And I wouldn't want to just pin it down to one thing. Yeah. You mentioned that uh, many young people don't seek help. And in the study, it said that more young people aged 18 to 24 sought information about depression from the internet rather than a GP. Is this because of how quick it is to access information on the internet? I suspect that's part of it. I think young people are the lowest group of the population likely to seek help from a GP. Um, And there's probably a lot of reasons for that. I think lack of anonymity. Often the GP is the same as your parents' GP when you're young and you might want to not um, go and see the family GP for a mental health-related problem. There might be cost factors and transport issues and those sorts of things. But we do know that online support um, is very acceptable to young people. Young people really like seeking help online. And I think they do that for a number of reasons. You know, it's free. They can do it from the privacy of their own bedroom. It's non-stigmatizing. Um, they don't feel judged in the same way that you might do seeking help. So a lot of the barriers to help seeking are still stigma related. So they're afraid that people will judge them. They're afraid um, they don't understand confidentiality properly. So they don't understand that their problems will be kept private. So they're worried that the, the health professional will tell their parents or tell other people. Um, and so I think a lot of those sorts of things contribute to the barriers for seeking professional help. But they, those barriers aren't there when you're seeking help online. I think the other thing that young people like, um, and in fact all of us like when it comes to seeking help online, is the fact that it's available 24 hours a day. So you don't have to wait to get an appointment. You know, we know that um, it's hard sometimes to get appointments outside of working hours or outside of school hours. So that's a real barrier. Whereas the you know, online help is just available 24 hours a day. It's freely accessible. It's quick um, and it's readily available. And the other thing that young people told us that they like is the fact that they get peer support um, when they go online. So accessing forums and those sorts of things, they get help from other young people rather than sort of, you know, crusty old professionals. And they very much like that. And the other thing that young people found helpful when they did um, seek help online was that they also had then had the capacity to help and support other young people. And they found that very empowering. So it wasn't as simple as putting yourself in the role of patient and professional, but actually it felt much more equal than that. And people could give and receive support in a very kind of friendly, anonymous and non-stigmatizing way. And I think the, that anonymity factor was quite important to people. They liked the fact that nobody else knew who they were. Yeah. Um, Joe, in your report, it states that understanding the relationship between suicide and social media is an area that requires work. Would you be able to speak to that um, in the context of the increases in youth suicide? Well, I think, I think again, the relationship between suicide and social media is, yeah. is complex. I have yeah. no doubt that there are unhelpful ways that social media might contribute to um, distress and mental ill health. Um, and cyberbullying is a good example of that. You know, when I went to school, if, if people were being bullied at school, you went home and home was a safe place and, and you didn't have to be exposed to those bullies again until the next morning. Whereas now, you know, young people are getting bullied through their phones and through their computers and through their tablets and those sorts of things. You know, there's sort of no escape. So I have no doubt that social media can be used in an unhelpful way for, you know, sharing messages of distress or images of, of self-harm and those sorts of things. Um, but again... 
I'd say it was complex. And certainly the work we've been doing at Origin very strongly advocates for the fact that social media should also be part of a solution, not just seen as part of the problem. And again, young people told us that loud and clear when we did the, the um, consultation exercises around that report. So when we, we did some, some research around this, and we were looking at ways in which social media could be used as a, as a helpful tool rather than a harmful tool. And we did that by, you know, we, we had a good look at the literature and, you know, we found out the sorts of things that I've just been describing to you, that young people like the 24-hour nature of online support. Yeah. They like the fact that they could help others as well as be helped. Um, but we also then did some work with high school students over the last couple of years where we provided them with quite a lot of education around what was helpful and unhelpful ways to communicate about suicide on social media. And then we encouraged them to make some short films or messages and images that could be delivered through social media but had a suicide prevention sort of message. So they made things like images that you could imagine being delivered through a Snapchat or an Instagram campaign or they delivered, they developed short films. Um, and the essence of all of those sorts of, um, the messages that were contained in those products that the young people made were stories of hope and the fact that you're not alone, you're not the only person to have these feelings. Bad feelings go away. Um, you know, talk to a friend and you'll feel a bit better those kind of things. And we found that young people really found participating in the project beneficial. They actually really enjoyed it, which is often more than can be said for them seeking help from a psychologist. Yeah. Um, but they, um, they really felt better able to communicate safely about suicide online as a result of doing the project and felt better able to support a friend if they were exposed to distressing content or content that indicated that a friend might be struggling, having a tough time online. So one of the things that we're very mindful of is young people get exposed to all sorts of content via social media. And some of that content is very positive and beneficial um, and makes young people feel part of a community and makes people feel, people feel well supported. But other types of content might be distressing. So if somebody's having a bad day and they post you know, some messages that indicate that they're feeling quite hopeless or they're fed up with life, that has a real impact on the other young people exposed to that message. So the rationale behind the work we've been doing is about helping young people helping empower them to help change the conversation online or help them be better able to respond to other young people when they see that type of content. Yeah, and I Does think that, that makes sense. Yeah, and I think that's a really healthy way to look at it as well, looking at it from a solution um, perspective as well as, um, you know, looking at some of the negatives, looking at how it can be used positively. Well, I think we very much took the view that social media is not going anywhere. Yeah. And so whilst many people came out and just sort of bagged social media and blamed it for all the mm. ills of the world, you know, the view that we took at Origin uh, was, well, it's not going anywhere. Young people actually like communicating this way. It's also terribly accessible. Most young people these days have smartphones, yeah. you know. So it's actually a very accessible way to provide mm. support to people if it's used in the right way. Now, as I've said, I have no doubt that there are unhelpful sites out there and unhelpful conversations occur. Um, but our, our goal really was to give young people an alternative to those unhelpful conversations. Yeah. Um, and that's led us to quite a big piece of work, actually. So we've been lucky enough to get some funding from the Commonwealth Government to scale that small project that we just did in a few local schools in Melbourne, to scale that up to a national project. So we're in the process of setting that project up. And what we'll do there is work with young people from across the country to develop a couple of things. So one of them will be a social media suicide prevention campaign that's yeah. developed by young people for young people. And the other part of that will be um, the development of some, what we're calling resources or tools um, 
to help young people better support other young people, um, to, to better help us better understand what is safe ways of communicating about suicide online. Yeah. Um, in another note, um, why are postvention activities in school settings so vital to reduce the risk of subsequent suicides after a suicide? So, as I was saying before, young people or youth suicides are much more likely to occur as part of a cluster than adult suicides. And so by that we mean, you know, a cluster we sort of mean when there's, there's more deaths by suicide occur in a, within a time frame or within a given community than you would normally expect to see. And young people are particularly vulnerable to suicide clusters. And they're thought to kind of operate by this sort of process of contagion whereby one person's death um, would encourage another young person to act in the same way. Um, and people most at risk of, of that contagion, I suppose, are young people who might already be vulnerable. So they may already be exposed to experiencing mental ill health, for example. Um, but they'll also be more at risk if they were perhaps very close to the person who died, related to them in a particular kind of way. So, for example, if they were both victims of bullying, for example, or they both, I mean, I can give you a very topical example now. You know, again, young people who might identify as LGBTQI in the face of a government-funded plebiscite, you know, might feel particularly vulnerable. Um, and then young people who were very close in proximity to the death, so, for example, somebody who might have witnessed the death or might have to um, encounter the site of the death on a very regular basis. So those young people would be very um, vulnerable to, um, to being part of a potential suicide cluster. And clusters, because young people tend to congregate, congregate in school settings, schools are often a common setting for youth suicide clusters. So it's really important, because of that potential for contagion, it's really important that when there is a death of a young person in a community or in a school setting or, or wherever, that we're able to put in a very quick response to that death in order to minimise not just distress amongst the rest of the community, but also to minimise the risk of that death then sparking off potential what we might call copycat deaths, whereby, you know, other young people sort of saw that as a potential, to, the suicide as a potential solution to the difficulties that they're experiencing. So, for example, what we've got here in Australia, we're very lucky. We've got a government-funded service, Headspace School Support, that provides services to schools following the suicide of a student. And services like that are crucial. So they go in and they work with the school wellbeing team in order to provide a really timely response to make sure the students and the staff are getting the sorts of support that they need in order to reduce the risk of further, further deaths occurring. Right. And if you hop onto the um, Headspace website, the school support website, there's a whole toolkit and a frame, framework up there that I would recommend people have a look at um, because it talks about all the sorts of different activities that should occur as part of that response in order to minimise the risk, as I say, of distress. I mean, you can imagine being exposed to the suicide of somebody you know would be very distressing. Um, so you want to minimise that distress as far as possible. I read that screening large groups is potentially failing to recognise those who may need help. Is this due to the vagueness of the screening process or that those who may be suicidal tend to hide it? So, look, that's an interesting question. I think in our experience of doing screening, most young people actually, when you ask them directly if they feel suicidal, will answer honestly. Um, so most people, if they're not suicidal, will simply say no. But if they are they'll generally answer honestly. 
and they'll often be relieved that somebody's finally asked them the question. So I think it's fine if you're worried about somebody to ask them directly if they feel suicidal. I think screening has to be done very carefully because what you don't want to do is further stigmatise people who might already be feeling vulnerable or stigmatised. Um, but what we would say, and the research clearly is telling us at the moment, that screening tools aren't very precise. So they're not necessarily very good at picking up the right people and they often miss the wrong people. So what that means is we often end up picking up or identifying a number of young people as potentially being at risk who actually aren't really at risk. Um, and what we do, what they often do as well is fail to detect, and this is much more worrying, they fail to detect people who are at risk. Um, yeah, but, they, um, but it's because of the sensitivity of the tool, not necessarily because young people aren't honest. So what we really sort of say is clinical judgment is the best way to go. And in fact, a, a, a patient or a client is much more able to determine their level of risk than a screening tool. So there's been some research that's come out of the UK recently that showed exactly that, that when they compared the ability of a client, so a, a patient, um, they compared their ability to predict their future risk and they compared the ability of a screening tool to do the same. The clients are actually much better able to say, yes, I'm vulnerable and I'm at risk and I can't keep myself safe than a screening tool was. Yeah. Um, so, Joe, young people have asked for school staff to stop being afraid to talk about mental health with students directly. Um, why do you think they're so afraid? Is it that lack of training or the fear of the issue itself? Um, I think it's it's probably both. Actually, yeah. I think people I think people are afraid to talk about suicide in these settings because they're afraid that they will put ideas into people's heads. Yeah. I think actually that's the bottom line. Yeah. School staff are particularly worried that by raising the issue, that will put ideas into people's heads. And again, research that we've done and research from other groups has suggested that that's not the case. Yeah. And in fact, when we did the consultations around the Raising the Bar report, young people were telling us loud and clear that they wanted these conversations to be occurring openly in schools and they, they didn't make them feel vulnerable. Yes, it might be distressing to talk about suicide, but young people found it worthwhile to do so if that meant people were getting the sort of help that they needed. So I think training school staff and other professionals um, yeah. about how to have these conversations safely has long been part of suicide prevention strategies here in Australia and around the world. Um, so that, that sort of training is very, very important. But I think we also just need to get over the stigma associated with talking about suicide. Yeah. Um, what are the main steps that need to be taken to reduce the youth suicide rate, including at a policy level? Um, I think not having a same-sex marriage plebiscite would be a good start. Mm -hmm. I, think, I think what we need is an up-to-date suicide prevention policy. So at a policy level, I would say we need a new policy um, and we need a youth suicide prevention plan that young people are involved in developing and implementing. And I think unless we talk to young people about what they think will help them, we're constantly going to be throwing good money after bad. So there's a lot of investments gone on over recent months and years in suicide prevention from the government, and we're very grateful for that. But we really need to make sure it's being targeted in the right way. So whilst we're not sort of saying, you know, that we would never say there's too much money in suicide prevention, we could always say, look, we could always do with more resource. Um, but I would certainly say that the money needs to be targeted in the right way and efforts need to be targeted properly. So all the sorts of things we've talked about, you know, accessible healthcare services, youth-friendly GPs, um, widespread headspace and e-headspace services, using technology smartly, all of those sorts of things, primary prevention that specifically targets suicide prevention in schools and universities, 
all of those things, I think, would contribute to reducing rates of youth suicide. Um, and Joe, what advice can you offer parents or friends of young people who are experiencing suicidal thoughts? Look, I would say my main advice is don't be afraid to talk about this. It is difficult to give voice to, you know, feeling suicidal is incredibly difficult, um, incredibly distressing, incredibly frightening. Don't be afraid to talk about it. Don't be afraid to raise it with a young person for fear of putting ideas into their heads. As I've said, that doesn't happen. That's yeah. not the case. If you are worried about your son or your daughter or your friend, simply ask them if they're okay and be prepared to listen to the answer. And I think, again, a lot of people don't ask the question because they're afraid of the answer and they're afraid that they won't know what to do with the information they're given. And I would say to them, don't feel you have to have all the answers. Just simply be willing to sit, listen to the distressed person, don't judge them, be kind, and then simply help them find some professional help. And lastly, what should people turn to for help if they are having suicidal thoughts? Yeah, so there's lots of good options out there. I would say, you know, look at your lo- look for your local headspace service. They're specifically designed services for young people, very experienced at working with young people who feel suicidal. For those people that don't want to go into a centre or don't have a centre nearby, there's eHeadspace, which provides online clinical support. There's great services through people like Reach Out, who have lots of really good forums around these sorts of issues. UGP is always a first port of call. And most importantly, I would just say find somebody to talk to that you can trust and and talk with them, share your feelings with them, and then work with them to look for the right help. Great. Thank you so much, Joe, for taking the time to talk to us today. We really appreciate it. That's an absolute pleasure. I hope it goes well. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.